Hi, you're tuned in to 90.7 FM, KALX Berkeley. I'm Andrew Saintsing, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak to UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by Greg Meyer from the Department of Physics. Hey, how's it going? It's great. How are you? Terrific. Cool. It's so great to have you on the show. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. So we were talking about doing an interview, and you were mentioning that you study quantum computing. That's right. And I have no idea what that means. <laughs> and so I'd love to learn more about what that means. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So um, I think, yeah, a good place to start is maybe this idea that came all the way from like the mid-20th century from Alan Turing, um, who was like working on computing and that sort of thing in like the 40s and 50s. The, the idea is that people thought for a long time, for most of the 20th century, that in short, like no matter how you build a computer, the problems that are hard for it will be always be hard. So like you can build like any of the computers you use, like your laptop, you could use your phone, you could use like, you turns out you can build a computer out of like marbles falling down a little track and stuff like that, which is pretty wild. What do you mean you could build a computer out of marbles? Okay, yeah, that's a track. pretty cool thing that is probably <laughs> worth mentioning because it's pretty wild. Um, so the idea is like, what, what? makes up a computer in some sense at like the lowest level is just that you can like give it some inputs and that it does some work on those and it gives you some outputs right so like an abacus is a computer yeah um but then there's this idea of what's called turing completeness which means that any like algorithm that you could run on sort of a generic computer that uh a machine is Turing complete if you could run that algorithm on that computer. And you might have to like adjust it a little bit to actually work. So I think an abacus is actually not Turing complete because there's no way to like sort of program it and then have it go by itself. Okay. Um, but it turns out that even like, this is kind of ridiculous, but the game Magic the Gathering, if you like set up the cards right, is Turing complete. Like you can like get a program to run on it in some sense by just like playing the game. Um, but like you're, you're, you're doing the cards. So yeah, you would have to move the cards around. That's true. You. That's true. But like everything that you would do would be preset. So with an abacus, you can like move the different things around kind of however you want. Right. But like if you set it up so that you like have to, there's only one choice in what you can do at each turn of the game, you can like get it to figure out something. Uh, okay. And so the same thing with like marbles rolling down this thing, it turns out, you can like set up a track for marbles to go down in a certain way that if you put the marbles in in like a certain order, they will fall through in a way that like computes some function, which is really uh, cool. So, so you just like know that the marbles always have to fall this way. Yeah, because you've okay. like set it up that way. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of, I mean, how normal like computers you would think of work too is like you put electrical impulses in in a certain way and then you know that they'll be processed by like going through lots of different switches and gates and stuff like that. Right. And then you'll get some answer out at the other end. Okay. So this is pretty cool. So this is the idea of like, there's many different ways in some sense of like building a computer or where a computer is just like something that computes things. Right. Um, and for a long time, so people found out that certain problems are hard to compute. Okay. What do you mean by hard? <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's a good question. So you might generically think like, so hard means in some sense takes a long time or uses a lot of memory, which right. sounds like kind of like fine, then build a better computer that's faster or has more memory. But sort of generically, when we talk about things being hard or easy in theoretical computer science, uh, hard is like, hard versus easy is the comparison of like takes a minute to run versus takes like more than the length of the universe to run. Right. So like the idea is like, it's not just like, oh, it takes twice as long. It's like it takes an absurdly long time to run. And 
the reason that that's important is it's like, okay, you could wait 10 years and get a computer that's 10 times as fast, but like you're never going to get a computer that's fast enough to run these calculations that would take like, you know, just this absurdly long time or use an absurd amount of space. So it's like if we're, if we're on, we have our marbles on the track, there's like a problem that you just have to like super easy, you put it on the track and it finds a hole and then that problem is solved. Yeah, Versus exactly. if you had the track that just runs for like a mile and that's it has exactly to get right. all the way down the track before yeah. it's solved. Yeah, that's right. And the the crazy thing is, yeah, for these, you know, so-called hard problems, it wouldn't even be like a mile long probably for the, the sort of the hard versions of these problems. It would be like, you know, the track would be the width of the universe. Like it's right. something like that where it's just like totally infeasible to do it on Earth. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, so that's pretty wild. So all computers, I guess, have different underlying mechanisms that yeah. they're operating on. Right. But in some sense, they solve the problem in the same way. Yeah, and even if they solve the problem in a slightly different way, that that's just kind of the really cool thing about this conjecture is it's like, saying it doesn't even matter if you try to solve it in a different way using a different algorithm whatever it's just saying like as long as you're using physics which you are doing because you're in the world right. um it doesn't matter how you try to solve it it'll be hard regardless i see and as i said this was kind of like a conjecture but it seems to have held up people have come up with all kinds of wild ways to try to like compute things and it seems like these hard problems regardless are like always hard so this was true until kind of the 80s or 90s and then all of a sudden people started thinking about, okay, what if like the bits, the ones and zeros that we use inside computers, what if we let them be sort of quantum mechanical? So we let them do the things that particles can do in quantum mechanics, which is like, you know, uh, you might have heard sort of the pop sci version of quantum mechanics is like a particle can be in two places at once, or it can be a particle in a wave at the same time. Right. So what we're going to let these bits do is just sort of like be in two different states at the same time. So normally a bit is a zero or a one. And we say, okay, what if it can be what's called a superposition of zero and one. It's kind of in zero and one at the same time, which is pretty wild. So I know I hear the word bit all the time yeah. when we talk about computers. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Can you just explain it a little more? Like, Yeah, what? definitely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, um, so, you know, from just like counting from kindergarten or whatever, um, that when you write down a number, it has various digits, right? And they right. can go from zero through nine. So computers count instead of in base 10, which is these 0 through 9 numbers, in base 2. So that means that instead of the options being 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, the options are just 0 or 1. And then right. once you get to 1, that's like the 9, because when you go to the next one, you have to add another digit. And then you just keep counting 0, 1, 0, 1 in the ones place. Okay? Right. Yeah, a bit is just is just one of those digits. So it's just a 0 or a 1. So when you're, say, counting or doing whatever operation on a computer, those are the two options that you have for sort of a digit that you can hold in your computer. So you tell it to do some math, and then it just, like, starts reeling off 0, 1, 0, 1, 0, 1, 0, 1, and then it gets you to the answer. Yeah, basically. exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So you can think of computers kind of as just doing math in the normal way, which is, you know, just storing a bunch of numbers, adding and multiplying them together or whatever. It just happens that... The way that it stores the numbers is not by counting 0 through 9. It's by counting just from 0 to 1. And so, yeah, when we say bits, that's just like literally those zeros and ones that are stored in the computer. But then you're telling it that, okay, normally the computer knows there's a 0 or a 1 here. And now it's thinking it can be either 0 or 1 at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Which is wild. Just one bit doing that is like kind of interesting. But it turns out when you stick a lot of bits together, the sort of... In some very vague sense, the the power that you get out of that grows exponentially with the number of bits. So already, if you have like 100 bits, the number of different 
sort of states that you could have a superposition of is like more than the number of atoms in the universe. So it's growing like super, super fast. And this kind of got people excited because they're like, wait, we had this other thing that was blowing up like the number of atoms in the universe, which is how hard these problems are. What if like we could actually somehow use these bits in a clever way? In the mid 90s, this professor at MIT, Peter Shore, published a paper that was pretty groundbreaking because it showed that there is actually a problem that on... As, as far as we know so far, is one of these really, really hard problems that's totally infeasible on a regular computer. And he said, hey, if someone managed to build a quantum computer that actually, you know, you can use in this really precise way and actually works, you could actually solve this problem, which is super wild. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you know what the what is the problem? Yeah. So I can tell you about it. It's actually, yeah, so it's pretty wild. So this problem, which is generally thought to be hard, is called factoring. It's a pretty simple idea. So... Say I hand you a really big number, and Uh I promise you this number is the result of multiplying two prime numbers together, okay? Right. Um, But I don't give you any other information. My question to you is, what are those two prime numbers that I I multiply together? So for a small number, this is easy. I say, like, here's the number 21. What prime numbers did I multiply together? And you're like, okay, just think, you know, got to remember fourth grade or whatever for a moment. Like, seven and three, you multiply together and you get 21. But it turns out if I give you, like, a thousand-digit long number, then that problem gets super, super hard. And there's actually no fast algorithm that we know on regular computers to do this. You just have to keep multiplying numbers together. Yeah, you basically just try it um, until you find one. There's some clever ways of making it a little bit better than just like literally trying all the possibilities and hoping. Right. Um, But still, they're not fast. And this is actually really important because currently, uh, like when you pay with your credit card on the internet, you want that your credit card number to be hidden, right? As you send it across the internet. And the way that you hide it is actually by hiding it in one of these problems. So you say, I know no one can read my credit card number because to do that, they would have to factor one of these really big numbers. And it's really cool that you can do that, that you can actually like hide it in that sort of a problem. But yeah, so for like... I guess, what does it mean that you like hide it in that problem? Yeah, so, so, so... In sort of a really rough sense, what it means is that you come up with some kind of like digital lock, you could call it, where the key is those two numbers that were multiplied together. Right. But the only thing you send along with it is the big number that is the result of that. So, you know, um, because you locked it with this digital lock that if someone managed to to figure out the key, so they managed to to actually like unlock this digital lock, they would have had to figure out the two factors of this really big number. But because you like fundamentally know that's a really hard problem, you say, okay, nobody's going to be able to break this digital lock. Right. Um, and the details of how to actually like make a digital lock that uses those two numbers is a little complicated and takes a fair amount of math. But fortunately, you know, a lot of smart people have thought about that. So when you're entering your credit card into the internet, you don't have to do that yourself. Um, nice. Your computer just handles it for you. The one that people use in particular for like, like if you ever see HTTPS next to a website uh-huh. on on the web, the thing that's that S means like secure. So the thing that's making that secure is actually exactly this problem of multiplying two numbers together, uh, okay. which is really cool. Is it? Is it always? It's not the same number. No. Right. So right. So that's really key. Actually, the nice thing about this problem is you could think of a really hard problem, but in which there's only like one instance of it, and then it's kind of useless if someone figures it out because yeah, yeah. Then like fine. Now everyone can read the thing. The really nice thing about this is you can always pick two different numbers, and then. You're the only one who knows those, but you still know that the problem's hard. Right. So that's why it's really nice is it's really flexible and you can kind of – it's super easy to come up with these numbers on your own, but it's still super hard for someone else to break it. Right. The reason that people kind of were like holy moly about quantum computing is this algorithm that was published in 1994 said, hey, 
If someone actually managed to build a quantum computer, they would be able to take these really huge numbers and find the factors out, which, I mean, if if we didn't, like, fix our cryptography, that would be, like, devastating for the internet, right. <laughs> which is pretty wild. But also, I think, aside from that practical concern, just says something fundamental about this question that we started talking about at the beginning, which is, like, hard problems are hard. Um, no matter how you build a computer, because this is saying this is a hard problem and we've built a computer still using physics um, that could maybe actually solve this problem. So you might have to change that that original conjecture to say um, hard problems are hard as long as you're only using what we call classical physics, which is like not quantum physics, which is pretty wild. So once you add in quantum mechanics, you can start to solve these really hard problems. That would, we would just have to come up with new security measures. Yeah, at that yeah. Point. and that's something that a lot of people are working on right now, too, because even though um, no one has managed to build a quantum computer that works well enough to run this sort of, like, to solve this sort of problem, it seems like it's coming, right. and presumably it's a good idea to figure this out before someone actually builds one. Right, because you <laughs> so, were saying that when I said that we, we shouldn't be expecting them in the near future, you were saying that maybe there would be? Yeah, yeah, so that's right. The factoring problem I was talking about, solving that one is probably pretty far off. So I think the current record for um, factoring using that algorithm that was published in like 1994 on a quantum computer, the current record is factoring 21. So it managed to figure out that the factors are 7 and 3, which, as I said earlier, is probably pretty easy to figure out without using that algorithm. Yeah. Wait, <laughs> but, you mean like that's the hardest problem it can figure out? That's, that like that's actually... the hardest problem that someone has actually managed to build a machine to figure out right. using that algorithm. And so, I mean, you know, obviously I just know 21 because I memorized the times table. Yeah. But like actually for a computer, if you had no knowledge of the the factor yeah. in 21, that is like a really hard problem. So it's not a hard problem because um, – Oh, because you only have like so yeah, many Yeah, you only have so many to check. Yeah, yeah, so you can literally just check all the numbers below 21 and be like, okay, that was easy. These, right. It's these things. So the reason that it starts to get hard is you just start making these numbers a lot bigger and then the numbers – the number yeah. of numbers that you have to check just blows up. Right. And then at some point there are so many that it's just like totally unreasonable to try yeah. to do it. So the factoring 21 thing obviously – wasn't meaningful in any practical sense. But the reason it is meaningful is it says, hey, look, this algorithm does actually work even at this really small scale. And if we manage to build a quantum computer that's big rather than this really tiny one that that they managed to build, then maybe it can actually solve the same problem on some really big numbers. Right. Um, so it's kind of a proof of concept. Right. But so speaking of proofs of concept, a question that a lot of people, a lot of people have been wondering is they're saying, OK, so it's pretty clear that it's hard to build a quantum computer that can factor numbers really well. But maybe there's some other problem out there that's still really hard for regular or classical computers, as we call them. So it's still really hard for regular computers, but is easy for quantum computers. So maybe there's something that's a lot easier for quantum computers than factoring. Um, Just to go back, the yeah. algorithm that solves the 21 factors, yeah. that is something that a regular computer could not run? Yeah, it sort okay. of fundamentally couldn't run because it's not quantum. Right. I guess you could like, quote unquote, simulate a quantum computer on your regular computer to get it to run. But you would still be like relying on the underlying. Yeah, exactly. Like bits. Yeah. That have definitive states. Yep. And if you try to simulate a really big quantum computer, your computer won't be able to do it, obviously, because if you could just simulate a quantum computer, then quantum computers wouldn't be very interesting. Right. (laughs) Um, Okay. So you're looking at the hardest, harder problems that regular computers can solve and how fast quantum computers can solve. Yeah, so we're trying to find the like 
easiest problem for a quantum computer that's still hard for a regular computer, right? Right. Um, because we want we want just like a proof of concept. We want something that like even though our quantum computers don't work very well right now, we just want to be able to show for some problem as contrived as it might be. Look, the quantum computer was able to solve this, and we couldn't do it on a classical computer. We just want that proof of concept, right? No matter what the problem is. Okay. So it's not going to be like really practically useful in any sense, but it works as like. Um, just to prove that maybe quantum computers can really do something that classical computers can't. Because up until literally last year, you know, people had come up with this algorithm and said, if someone could build a working quantum computer, we would be able to break this problem. But then a bunch of skeptics were like, well, maybe it's just fundamentally impossible to build a quantum computer that can do that. Like maybe there's something fundamental about how hard it is to control, you know, these electrons or atoms or whatever that actually makes it impossible to build a machine that can do that. So what we'd like to do is, you know, build a machine that can solve some problem just to prove to people, hey, look, it really is true that there are some problems that quantum computers can solve that regular computers can't. Right. Um, So in in terms of doing this proof of concept... um, yeah, people are wondering, you know, what's the what is the easiest thing we could do on this quantum computer that we can't do in a regular computer? And it turns out one good idea for that is just literally have it do like random operations. Like you just feed it some data and then it just does random stuff to it. Um, but the key is that it does random quantum stuff to it so that a classical computer wouldn't be able to keep up because it would have to try to like simulate the quantum mechanics. And, and we know that classical computers aren't good at that doing like addition or something on a bunch of like it's yeah. just like doing some yeah random. so like if, if you were to run a random a random thing on a regular computer you might think that it picks like yeah plus times minus divide and like or any number of other operations and just like randomly picks them and just keeps applying them to the data over and over with like maybe you multiply by some random number and then you divide by some random number and add things and like uh-huh. you just keep doing random stuff and you're going to do a similar thing on your quantum computer except you're not just going to use plus minus divide multiply you're going to do some like you know sneaky quantum things which are kind of hard to describe in like a in a generic way but the point is that the the quantum operations that you would use to for example that you would build an algorithm like this factoring algorithm out of you're just going to pick random ones of those and just apply them randomly to this data okay, okay? google there's a a group at Google that's that's um, working on building a quantum computer, and they actually just a f- couple months ago came out with a paper saying, hey, we did this thing where we had our computer just like our quantum computer just do random stuff, and we managed to do it big enough that that it was so big that there's no classical computer that could actually manage to keep up with the with the calculations, which is super cool. So this was like sort of the first proof of concept saying, even though this is a super contrived kind of useless problem, which is like literally solving a random problem. Um, what it does show is that there's something we did on a quantum computer that we couldn't do on a regular computer. And that's already a really cool thing. Yeah. So it's showing that this, this, um, this idea of quantum computing actually like works in some weak sense, but still in a meaningful way. We're getting closer to what I'm actually sort of working on now, believe it or not. <laughs> um, <Well>. So, <laughs> yeah. So in, in particular, the one really hard part of this experiment that they did where these they're running these random things is, you know, the hard part about building a quantum computer is making it reliable. Like it's 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 really hard to make sure that it's actually doing the things that you asked it to do um, because these, you know, electrons or atoms or whatever are really hard to control. So you want to check that after you've solved your problem that the answer was actually right. The problem is the whole point of the, the random circuit problem which is the the one that we're talking about 
the whole point of that is that it's really hard for a regular computer to solve. So then there's this question of like, wait, how do you actually check that it did the right thing? Right. Right. So that's like sort of a fundamental issue with this. And what they did is they just said, okay, we're going to pick an instance of the problem. So we're going to pick a specific random problem that is big enough that only like the biggest supercomputer in the world can actually get the answer. And then we're going to say our little machine, which fits in, you know, just like a room or, you know, it's just like the size of a refrigerator managed to solve this problem in a minute and it took the biggest supercomputer in the world like a week to solve it and we're going to say you know therefore this thing is clearly faster like our quantum computer is clearly faster but we can still check the answer because we managed to actually get the answer on this huge supercomputer right i got you so the limits of regular computing versus to see so you can still get the right answer right so you so that so that you can still check that the answer is right cool there's kind of a cool question though which is like Are there problems like that that a quantum computer can solve like in the near term, like in the next year or two, that are actually hard for normal computers to solve, but easy for them to check? Okay. So yeah, just solving the problem and and being handed the answer and checking the answer are not exactly, you know, not necessarily equal in how hard they are. Right. Um, I mean, just like the one that we started off with. Yeah, right? exactly. Like, so that's you can a, multiply the numbers together. Really. Right. Easily, exactly. Right? That's a, that's a really good example. So yeah, if someone hands you the two numbers and say, these two numbers multiply together to make the big number that you gave me, you can literally just check that. You just multiply them and say, okay, yeah, you're right. They do yeah. multiply together to give that. But as we said earlier, running the algorithm to get, you know, those two factors is really hard. So we're wondering, is there some easier thing right. that does the same thing? And so way back in 2008, which I guess wasn't way back in like, I don't know, in the timescales people probably normally think about, but is way back in terms of like sort of scientific computing research time, right? Like a lot happens in, in 12 years or whatever it's been. So in 2008, people had this idea, which was maybe we can do something like this, this sort of like random circuit, this do a bunch of random operations and have your, your quantum computer give an answer. But we're going to give those random things. They're not going to be totally random. We're going to give them a little bit of structure so that the answer that they give out is easy to check. And they kind of came up with a way to do this. And they said, you know, we can't figure out any way to do this on a regular computer. It looks like other problems that are also really hard for regular computers. So we think this is actually a really good instance of of a problem that's really hard to solve on a regular computer. Easy for a quantum computer to solve. But still um, easy for a regular computer to check. Right. Right. Does that make sense? Yes. So that was kind of out there for a while. And actually just a couple months ago in December, I was thinking about these sorts of problems and I came across that paper and I thought it was kind of interesting that they were able to sort of compare it to these other problems that are hard on a regular computer, but they weren't actually able to like prove definitively that it was actually hard. So it was kind of this open question for, for um, the past decade or so of like, you know, is this problem actually hard? And I think that sort of their idea was, yeah, it probably is hard, but we just haven't figured out how to prove that yet. Um, and they had proved a bunch of sort of related things, like that certain parts of it were hard, but it wasn't possible to sort of plug them all together and say, this entire thing is hard and there's no way for a regular computer to answer this thing, right? Okay. And actually in December, I published a paper that says, hey, here's how you can actually solve that problem with a regular computer. Um, which I was pretty excited about. So it was saying, I mean, it's kind of a bummer because this seemed like it would be a really convenient thing and it's sad that it doesn't work. There's actually a way to solve this problem on a regular computer. So it's not anymore a very good like test of quantum computer, um, which is a little sad, but it was also a really fun result to like 
to be able to figure out a way that you can actually solve this problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's cool. And so, yeah, kind of, uh, you made these people a little mad, huh? No, I didn't actually. So I was actually really happy. They were very, I would say, they were very good scientists in that they said very clearly in their paper we are able to show that these things, that these various parts of the problem are hard, but we can't show that the whole thing is hard. We want people to try to figure out if it's actually hard. Mm. So they actually put online just an instance of this problem. They said, you know, like I was saying, you could hand someone a really big number. They put the equivalent of that online, just like, here is what we would hand to the quantum computer. If you can figure out the answer, whether by using a quantum computer or not, like if you manage to build a quantum computer and find the answer, or if you manage to do it somehow else, we'll give you $25 if you send us the answer, <laughs> <laughs> which was nice. really cool because they were kind of like trying to encourage people to think about it. Google so yeah, situation. <laughs> yeah. So like, <laughs> like a couple months ago, I sent them an email and I was like, Hey, uh, this should be the answer to your thing. Nice. Um, and they were actually super excited about it. They thought it was really cool that, um, that it had finally kind of gotten answered. So yeah, definitely. Yeah, you might imagine that that might be an instance of scientists being like, oh, dang it, someone like refuted our results. But they were actually really awesome about it. And they said they were like super excited that someone had made this advance um, of, of figuring that out. So, Great. yeah, it was it was really fun. So I yeah made like half of my grad student salary for for the year. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By solving this problem. But yeah, so so that was a really fun thing to work on. And sort of the, the questions that I'm thinking about next are sort of, you know, is there some sort of replacement? Like, is there some way to change what they did to make it so you can actually prove that it's hard for a regular computer? Or is there just, like, some other kind of protocol that you can run that that you can really actually, like, prove definitively would be hard so that there can't be any sort of, like, sneaky way to solve it um, on a classical computer? So that's kind of what I'm thinking about now, wow. um, which is pretty fun yeah i don't know I enjoy yeah thinking about so it. like your research you think it's a lot of fun right oh definitely yeah. i yeah i think it's really cool have you always wanted to solve math problems in high school where you like they would give you a hard math problem you'd be like yes yeah so yeah i kind of yeah <laughs> um so yeah I've, I've kind of like always enjoyed math and that sort of thing i think so part of where this has come from is like i really like cryptography which is you know the idea of like how can you sort of like hide information sort of like we were saying earlier like you know how can you keep credit card numbers safe on the internet and stuff like that Um, and i think it's really interesting and super cool that you can use math for these like practical purposes like you can have a math proof that says no one's going to steal all my money which i think is a super neat thing and these questions of like what problems are hard and what problems are easy for computers are like super intimately tied to that because what you're looking for when you want to build these digital locks is a, is a problem that's really hard for for right. a computer to solve. Although it sounds like pretty abstract like figuring out, you know, whether you can come up with problems that are hard for regular computers, easy for quantum computers or maybe also hard for quantum computers and you can prove those sorts of things. That's actually like really relevant practically to like building a secure internet, which right. is really cool. And I think that's part of what motivates me to think about these sorts of things is just that like um, there are some pretty important practical uh, implications of it. How daunting did your field seem to you before you got into it? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So I think maybe part of the reason that it didn't feel super daunting is because I didn't originally intend to really think about these sorts of things or like to, I guess, not think about them, but to like to do it as research. So 
I'm in the physics PhD program, not in like the computer science PhD program. Um, and I came to Berkeley like working on not even really these problems. I was working on more questions of like, you know, if you throw a bunch of atoms in a box and they're all talking to each other, sort of like, what do they do? Like what collective behaviors come out of them? Mm-hmm. So pretty kind of different, but at a very like fundamental level, level related problems. Um, and I was just sort of thinking about like this cryptography stuff kind of for fun. And I, you know, took a few cryptography classes in the computer science department and like math classes just because I kind of thought they were interesting. But then I started finding these papers that, you know, put these ideas of like quantum physics and cryptography together. And I just like, it just really got me excited. So, so I think, yeah, maybe the field wasn't too daunting just because I like didn't mean to work on it until recently. (laughs) So you kind of like already had the background necessary or, you know, you had the foundation in place. And then once you started actually exploring this field, it didn't seem like it wasn't some, it was something that it was inaccessible to you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's not like, you know, freshman year of college, I was like, I am going to do this in six years. (laughs) I was like, certainly not that. I, uh, yeah, I think I might've been like an, a mechanical engineer or something, but for some reason, I just like really was scared of chemistry and you had to take chemistry to be a mechanical engineer. So I decided to do physics instead. <laughs> that is so interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know. Because I, I know like I, you know, I majored in chemistry in undergrad and all the chemistry f- majors were like, I, I don't want to take any more physics. Like when they, when you have to do physical chemistry, it's, yeah. like, it's just yeah, like, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I guess different, different people's brains like just hook onto different things better, you yeah, know? Um, for sure. So all of the stuff you talked about sounds like very complicated. Do you ever just get overwhelmed thinking about all of it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely I like to take a lot of like breaks during the day. Um, and a lot of times I'll just like go on walks around campus and like think about whatever to try to like clear my head a little bit. But also something I like to really, I really like to do in my spare time is bake bread. And something I really like about it is that it's like kind of the polar opposite of like the research that I do. Like it's not very quantitative. I like to like not even really pay attention to the recipe really. And just like, you know, get a feel for the dough, see if it needs like more flour just by, you know, how it feels and stuff like that. Um, And it's just like super tactile, not very logical. And I think it's really nice to have something to do that like just uses a totally different part of your brain, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and then you also get really tasty bread at the end. Well, hopefully maybe it tastes like trash, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, yeah, you might have a tasty snack at the end of it too, which is a nice, a nice bonus. Nice. You're either doing science or you're baking bread. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Obviously I like to do other stuff too. I also really like to be outside. Um, so I really like to go hiking and also go like mountain biking and, and do stuff up in the mountains. I have a little dog that really loves to go on adventures along too. So, cool. um, yeah, he's he's really happy to go cruise around the mountains as well. Yeah, yeah. It's just great to have anything to turn turn your brain off for a while. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And even even if your brain isn't turned off, even just like a different place to to like sort of have your mind think about whatever. You know, sometimes that's where you actually figure stuff out is is when you're when you're not trying to think about it, which is nice. Right. Yeah. Cool. unfortunately it looks like we're running out of time on the interview uh do you have anything you'd like to say before the end of the interview yeah definitely i think that if if you take one thing away from listening to this i would hope that it's that quantum computers aren't magic there's a lot of sort of hype in the news that says like you know quantum computers are gonna like 
you know, be able to solve every every problem we can't solve, or they're going to be able to like they're going to totally destroy the internet or like whatever. And like, there are a couple very specific problems that they're really good at. But like in twenty years, you're not going to be sitting there typing on a quantum computer. At best, you might be connecting to one on the internet to solve really specific, probably scientific problems. Quantum computers aren't magic. If someone tries to tell you that they've built a quantum computer that can solve any problem in the world, you might want to be a little skeptical. Okay, keep that in mind. It's like any of those things, right? Like they said 3D printing was going to completely change everything. Yeah, yeah. it's like, yeah, it's useful for a couple things. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, We'll, we'll tamp down our expectations. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. And then you'll be really excited if it does do something crazy <laughs> cool. <laughs> Great. Uh, I've been speaking today with Greg Meyer from the Department of Physics. Thank you so much for being on the show, Greg. Thank you so much for having me. It's been awesome. Yeah, it's been great. Tune in in two weeks for the next episode of The Graduates.